Okay. So, um, good evening, all. It's Devara Kresniansky here from Adayad. And tonight we're doing a webinar with Shalom Task Force, Avital Levin, who is the education director at Shalom Task Force. And tonight is part two in our series about the community having power to address abuse, to end abuse, to help those victims in abuse. And last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke with uh, Dr. Shana Friedman about what is abuse. And today in part two, Avital Levin will be talking about what we can do, how we can be supportive of those who are in an abusive situation. Uh, but before we get into that, Avital, can we talk a little bit about the work of Shalom Task Force and how they help the community and then what you do specifically, because I think it's great what you're doing for the community. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me tonight, Deborah. It's been um, it's been great to collaborate for the past few years, um, doing programs together. And I recently looked on Adeyad's website, um, and I was I was so impressed with just the wealth of education, awareness, and information that is there for um, for people to be able to access. Um, so thank you for including us. So Shalom Task Force, the organization, was started about 27 years ago when actually a pediatrician in the uh, Long Island community noticed that many of the mothers and children who he was treating in his practice had bruises. And this was an Orthodox Jewish pediatrician um, treating mostly you know, Orthodox Jewish um, clients, patients, and um, he recognized that there was a real issue of domestic abuse in the uh, firm community. At that time, there were limited uh, resources. In general, awareness then was much, um, it was different than what it was today. It was certainly many years before um, the Me Too movement, many years before there was more of a public awareness and willingness to recognize that abuse is something that exists uh, inside people's homes. So he, um, he approached a few active members of the community and Shalom Task Force started. Uh, the organization started primarily with a hotline, uh, which to this day continues to be a really vital resource for so many members of the community. Our confidential anonymous hotline uh, Tate receives calls. We have about 65 trained hotline advocates who, uh, who take calls. And when people ask who calls our hotline, so really it's, um, it's everyone. It's individuals who themselves are in an abusive relationship and are seeking support, as well as family members or friends or neighbors, uh, or sometimes community leaders who reach out looking to, um, to receive advice or support or resources on how to best support the person uh, who, they, um, who they suspect or are aware of as being in a uh, domestic abuse relationship. And that's, you know, that's the topic for tonight's roar that we'll speak more about how to support others in an abusive relationship. Um, we get calls from men, we get calls from women. And most recently, actually over the past few months during COVID, we were finally able to launch our chat line, um, which is an amazing resource. It's the same phone number as the Shalom Task Force hotline. And it, it, it offers the ability for people to be able to chat in. Um, so you can text that phone number, you can WhatsApp our number, maybe in a couple minutes, Deborah, if we wanna put the hotline number on the chat, um, you know, people can also look us up just by Googling Shalom Task Force or going to the shalomtaskforce.org website. Uh, so we, we have that ch chat line now and people are able to reach out to our chat with questions as well. Uh, we really encourage people to reach out during dating, during um, engagement, of course, marriage, with questions related to um, relationships and if there are any concerns of red flags or uh, concerns about something that is going on in the relationship that perhaps feels um, perhaps feels abusive, to reach out to the hotline and we're able to support you in that way. Um, connected to our hotline, we have a legal department. So Shalom Task Force has a team of attorneys who represent victims of domestic abuse pro bono. So we're, we're able to um, take on the case of somebody who is either um, has limited access to uh, finances, which is so often the case where if, if there's a situation of financial abuse, 
So um, very often a victim of abuse won't have really good um, resources to represent themselves legally. We have a phenomenal team of attorneys. They're able to um, represent victims. They're able to, they're really, they're so well versed in so many issues that are very specific for the from community. So knowing how to navigate some of the issues that come up with Beeston, knowing how to navigate issues related to custody, um, et cetera. So that's our legal department. And the department that I direct, which is the education department, is the department that um, that that tries to um, to do as much education awareness as we can. So really, we, tr we try to, we want to reach people um, earlier on before somebody is in a full-blown crisis. Ideally, we want to do more prevention work. We want, we want to educate more members of the community on how to uh, cultivate healthy relationships, how to seek um, as early support as possible in an abusive relationship or family situation, and of course, how to support others. So, um, you know, so that's our education department. We go in every year, we go to high schools, we go to college campuses, we do trainings for community leaders, we do general community awareness programs. Um, over the past year, I'm proud to report that, you know, together with um, members of our Shalom Task Force staff, as well as a team of education presenters um, that, I, um, that I supervise, we, we reached um, in the last year, so over the course of one academic year, we reached 8,000 individuals through our educational programs. It's a great, a great and it's very easy to hear. It's hard, the hard topic, but it's presented in a very friendly way of, around a hard, hard topic. So I really do appreciate what you're doing for the community. And I'm so glad that you're here to talk to our community tonight about what we can do as community members for other people, whether it's for in the community and or our loved ones. So I want to talk to some of the different situations. And if you want the recording of what is abuse, it's on our website at adiyad.org slash, uh, and you'll find it right right there, adiyad.org slash path-events, and uh, you can find it over there. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about what to do if you suspect something is going on for someone that you don't yet fully know. And I want to talk a lot about what not to do and what to do, but let's start with what not to do. Okay, so start with, I think before we even talk about what not to do or what to do, um, if it's okay, Deborah, I want to share uh, as I was preparing this and I was, as I was, you know, thinking about support and um, in my life, what has, you know, putting, trying to put myself back, in, you know, back in this mind frame of um, what feels supportive, um, what is supportive to somebody else. I was thinking about an experience that I had in my life, if it's okay, just for me to share and kind of, you know, to what we're, what we're discussing. So uh, about 10 and a half years ago, I, I was working as a clinician in uh, Flatbush in Brooklyn. Um, at an office there, seeing, treating clients. And I left my office in the evening, very busy area, co corner of um, Coney Island and um, Coney, Kings Highway, maybe like that, right there, that neighborhood. Um, and I was walking, I was walking to uh, my car and I stopped and saw a coworker of mine uh, on the sidewalk. So I stopped and we were, we were speaking for a couple of minutes. And I took a step backwards to say goodbye, to say goodnight. And I actually stepped backwards into a sidewalk vault. Um, so, I mean, you're, well, now you live in the five towns, but yeah. you spend a lot of time in the city. And I, I know, I'm sure you're familiar with, um, you know, with the sidewalk vaults. Those are those, um, the grates that typically are closed on a sidewalk. And they're, they're typically outside of restaurants in, you know, Manhattan and Brooklyn. And if they're open, then you're, you're, there's an underground basement, basically, under the sidewalk um, where restaurants often will store, um, you know, storage. So it was open. I, I didn't see it. I took a step backwards, again, on the sidewalk, fell backwards 10 feet backwards, straight down onto, um, you know, onto cement. And I, I was unconscious. Um, my friend who, this coworker of mine, a very close friend of mine, uh, saw everything. She watched it all. To this day, she is still, of the two of us, she is for sure more traumatized 
um, as the bystander in this situation, uh, seeing this happen, seeing me fall, seeing me hurt, thinking that I might have died, not knowing what was going to happen, being so afraid, she was for sure the more traumatized of the two of us. Um, and, you know, what happened next was that there was a, you know, a whole flurry of activity. My friend called Hatsala and uh, a few of the Hatsala members showed up to the scene and I was, um, you know, I was out, I was unconscious for a bit. But when I woke up, um, there was a whole team of Hatsala um, members, you know, working around me. And I was totally hysterical. I started freaking out. I didn't, you know, I didn't know exactly what happened, but I knew that, that I had, I was in a lot of pain and I knew that something terrible had happened and I was scared and they kept telling me, don't move, like stabilize her neck, stabilize her head. And, you know, I knew from watching enough, um, you know, ER or hospital TV shows, like that's not, you don't want to hear that. Um, so I was, you know, I was, I was so scared and um, I was sure that I was dying. So I started freaking out and I kept saying, I need to say Shema, I need to say Shema, I'm dying, I need to say Shema. And most of the Hatsala guys were um, kind of just ignoring me because they were busy making sure I was okay and trying to, you know, stabilize me and, and, and you know, treat me medically. There was one Hatsala um, responder who saw me freaking out and heard me saying again, again, I need to say Shema, I'm dying, I need to say Shema. And he came over and he, he crouched down next to me and he looked me in the face, looked me in the eyes and he said, hi, my name is Avraham. You're okay, you're not dying, you're totally fine. And I kept saying, no, no, I'm telling you, I need to say Shema, I'm dying. And he said, you're not dying, but I'll say Shema with you. Um, you wanna say Shema, I'll say Shema with you. And he sat there and he said Shema with me um, and he was calming me down. And when I think about that incident, I think about how um, he could have easily fallen into a role of deciding or thinking that what he needs to provide is singularly medical attention, right? There's this person in, you know, in really bad shape right there medically. That's what he's trained to do. That's what he needs to provide. And he could have um, stayed really fixated on that kind of support. I think what he did incredibly well was pay attention to what the support that the person was seeking in front of him was. You know, I was asking for, to, for somebody to say Shema with me. I was seeking that emotional support um, and he was able to provide that. He really took the cues from the person in front of him and that was the kind of support that he provided. So I think for me, it's helpful to kind of frame support uh, in this way overall. I think that that idea really works in general um, very often for when somebody is in a crisis, when somebody is perhaps in danger, when somebody is in a lot of pain, um, we, we can easily fall into this mode of just wanting to rescue them, wanting to help them. We know what's best. We see that they're struggling. We see that they're in danger. We're gonna provide the support that we believe they need at that time. But when we stop and we pay attention sometimes to what the person is seeking, what that person is asking for, and we're able to meet them where they're at and provide them that support, I think that sometimes that really elevates the whole supportive um, framework. You know, and that kind of allowed me at that time to actually kind of calm down. I felt like I had an ally there. I felt supported. Um, you know, I was able to almost like cooperate more instead of just panicking and, you know, and, and freaking out. Um, so I think that when we think about what is helpful, it's always number one, that empowerment response. You know, and sometimes Devorah, I know we've spoken about how um, sometimes when people, sometimes people are hesitant to call the Shalom Pass First hotline because they say, aren't you just gonna tell me to get divorced? You know, aren't you gonna tell me to leave? Um, aren't you going to tell me that this person is abusing me and that they're, you know, I deserve better? Aren't you going to tell me? And the truth is on the Shalom's House First Hotline, we're not telling anybody any of these things. We're not telling somebody something because we're asking, right? When somebody calls a hotline, we're asking the person. We're always operating with this empowerment kind of framework of asking the person, um, how can I help you? You know, you know your situation best. Um, help us help you. What is it that you're looking for? 
Uh, are you looking for, do you want us to just listen? Would you like a referral? Um, how do you think we can be helpful? What kind of referral do you want? You know, so it really always starts with that, with that kind of uh, empowerment and, and question asking. I noticed, did somebody have a question, Devorah? Did you notice? Um, we'll, we'll look at the question soon. Okay, sure. Yeah, so, you know, so we really start with that. And I'm sure that you find in your work, as well that um, that approaching somebody with a attitude of respect and of empowerment um, is transformative, right? There's it's it's so much more. You know, when we think about the definition of domestic violence or domestic abuse, um, we we talk about the power and control that's at the crux of that relationship dynamic. Right, it's always one partner looking to um, gain and maintain power and control over their partner. And they'll use so many different tactics of abuse to do so, but it's really about the power and control. So if we as the supporters in that situation, if we find ourselves also uh, telling the person what to do um, or demanding that you, you know, they just leave or um, or judging them, telling, you know, wondering, well, why don't you just, you know, get out? Why are you, you know, staying in this abusive situation? We're also then operating from this similar kind of place of power and control, of becoming another controlling force in that person's life. Um, so, of course, that will be ineffective. And, of course, it will go against the grain of what we want to do, which is, you know, which is help strengthen the person, empower them, elevate them, help them. Um, help us to be supportive in that situation. So we start with that. Okay, so now we have a, an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about support and a little bit of what not to do. But what's the, if we're in the situation where we hear a neighbor screaming all the time, um, what should we do? What should we not do? And what is right. even, even Shalom Task Force you know, if you call some task force, what might they be as I think it's very important, as you mentioned, to get ideas of what you can do. But let's just talk mm -hmm. about in general uh, to a more general idea. But some task force can help yeah. with the more specifics. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. OK, so first and foremost, we need to think about safety. And sometimes that sometimes that idea is is um, is overlooked because sometimes it can feel a little counterintuitive, right? If we think that somebody's in danger, if we hear that somebody's being shouted at or cursed at, um, if maybe even we witness or hear uh, violence, so we immediately um, and naturally, we feel protective of the person. We assume that they're in danger, we need to rescue them, we need to help them. Um, so it's sometimes counterintuitive to recognize that the person might be at greater risk with outside intervention at that time, um, right? If we intervene, if we get involved, that might put that person at a greater risk of danger. So safety planning is always really, really important. Um, and also recognizing sometimes people statistically, when somebody, uh, when a victim of abuse actually starts the process of leaving the relationship, that's historically the most dangerous stage of that relation, of that, relationship like for that person that's the most dangerous time period for them um the most you know the highest rate of uh homicides occur during that stage so that tells us how important uh safety is and certainly if the perpetrator the abusive partner in that situation uh senses or is concerned that a partner might be starting to leave a situation or might be aided by somebody else um, that might actually set them off and that might put them at greater risk. So we do a really, we, we're always, um, you know, always when somebody's calling the hotline, we're doing some level of safety assessment. Uh, so, and, and knowing how to do a safety plan, you know, it's a specific, it's a specific um, form of um, response. So, you know, it's, it's um, and, and I encourage people that actually if somebody um, wants to learn and wants to 
wants to be able to familiarize themselves with what exactly is involved in a safety plan. So, and how to, how to kind of think of in, think in those terms when they're supporting someone. So calling, again, calling the Shalom Task Force hotline, we get calls from other individuals who are looking to support the person. Please call the hotline, reach out to the hotline, figure out um, how you can start to think about safety for that person and how you can think about, um, you know, formulating some kind of a safe response. Um, so that's, that's first and foremost, really, is, is safety. So not knocking on the door and saying, what is going on here? So it might mean, and again, like I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't create really um, clear, like, you know, clear guidelines or like a list of do this, don't do that. It's more of like an attitude because every situation can be so different, right? And, you know, and without really knowing the players involved, the actors involved, it's very hard to kind of make this like blanket statement and say, you know, do this, knock on the door, say that, don't do that. Um, there certainly is a formula to, to general, you know, response and attitude. Um, I would say that, uh, and by the way, I, I checked right before the webinar just to make sure that this resource is up there. Um, but uh, a few years ago, I compiled the Shalom Task Force Domestic Abuse Awareness Guide. And if you go to our website, shalomtaskforce.org, it's, um, it's under resources. It's the first guide that's listed under resources. Um, and it's again called the Shalom Task Force Domestic Abuse Awareness Guide. And there, there's a whole list of in general kind of responses and attitudes. Uh, I created a list of kind of um, even specific language of what to say, you know, statements of support, um, what could be helpful to say, some questions to ask. So all of that is listed there. In terms of applying it, that's where it's a little bit more complicated. That's where I would, I would say calling the Shalom Task Force hotline, it would be more helpful to figure out for a specific situation how to apply it. Does that, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's really important is that like, right before you're going to do something is like kind of maybe, you know, get the handholding from some task force, read that, read that list, like get yourself into the mind space that you're going to be humble and be there in service of them, not just to be, to, out, to let out your outrage about what's going on. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and I think that, um, and I think like what you're mentioning is kind of this, this idea of, um, let's say it's a neighbor, right? I, I'm just using, let's say from your example of knocking on the door, um, if it's a neighbor, you know, I think that there are certainly ways to, for a neighbor to show up for that person and to show support. I don't know if like knocking at that door at that time would be the most supportive response. I think that if there is a way, there's a relationship there. Um, so let's say utilizing some of these different uh, approaches that we talk about, believe the person, validate them, you know, ask questions that are not, um, not like what you had said, Devorah, not, um, in, you know, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, not about prying, not about being nosy, not asking questions because, um, you know, we're curious or we're interested, asking maybe pointed specific questions. So in, uh, from a stance of being most helpful, you know, asking questions um, that you know you might be able to then be able to get the support for the person that they need, or you might be able to, um, you know, to redirect them, let's say, to another source of support. Um, so really asking very specific questions. But I want to get back to the first thing that I had said about really believing the person. And I think that even though this can sound simplistic, it's really a message that as a community, we have to repeat and repeat and repeat. Um, because uh, unfortunately, and, and I think sometimes very just naturally, there's sometimes this feeling of disbelief. Uh, if we, we find ourselves in a situation where somebody is, let's say, disclosing, somebody is sharing with you um, what's going on in their relationship, um, or, or even if um, you suspect that something is going on, whatever, you know, believe the person is so integral because it's very easy to fall into a trap of thinking, oh, well, you know, you're telling me this, but, you know, you're not the perfect person either, right? Or I just can't believe it about this person. You know, he's, 
he's the most friendly guy, you know, he's the nicest guy, or, you know, I can't believe that you're saying this about, you know, this woman, because, you know, she's such a tzadik guest, you know, she's always doing chesed for people. And I'm using now interchangeably the two different gender, because of course, that, you know, abuse affects everyone. Um, we, uh, um, you know, men can be victims, women can be victims. Um, so of course, we always want to uh, believe everyone. And we, we don't want to fall into a trap of thinking that of being skeptical, you know, and I think also, I, we, I, ta- I, I try to, sometimes I, um, actually, I noticed that when I've done leadership trainings, trainings for, let's say, college teachers, or mikvah attendants, or, you know, rabbanim, rabbitsons, I think sometimes leaders, because they often do find themselves in a position of needing to, like, assess the situation, so very often I'll get, like, a hand or a question of somebody saying, yeah, but, you know, what if the person is doing this because they want attention? What if the person, um, you know, what if they're saying this because they're trying to keep their kids from seeing the, you know, ex-husband? What if they're making it? And I think that um, in general, we have to move away from setting ourselves up as being the judge and jury in the situation. The person who's uh, an abuse victim will have many situations, especially if they're navigating legal situations, they'll have many situations already where they need to kind of, they need to be grilled, they need to be interrogated. Um, There are so many different aspects of their life where they already are playing this reel in their head of, will people believe me? What if they think that um, it's my fault? What if I look like a nebuch? What if I look, you know, disheveled and everybody sees my husband and he's this upstanding, you know, Aspen in the community, what if nobody believes me? So we never ever want to fall into a trap of also potentially being another source of judgment for this person. We want to believe the person first and foremost. I think especially when it's early in their journey and they haven't really been believed yet. So then if you don't believe them, it might set them back few months, a few years even. So it's really right. important. Just for sure. And very often, yeah, and very often with um, victims of abuse. I know I was speaking with somebody recently who was talking about um, their first time disclosing that um, their child sexual abuse, that they, were, that they had been molested. Um, and they shared that more than the damage of the actual abuse and how traumatic that was for them, they remember so clearly the first time they disclosed, you know, to the first person they disclosed to um, in their life, who they went to for support, and the fact that the person really didn't believe them, and how how traumatic that was. Even more, what they said in their words was that it was even more traumatic than the actual abuse that had been inflicted on them. Um, and you know, so we know that you know that the disclosure experience is so important, you know, and showing up and believing the person and, and not just, you know, not just believing them with reservation, but actually expressing. And that's the next piece is validating, acknowledging, saying, you know, I believe you, I'm here for you. Um, You know, I'm so sorry that you're going through this, or I'm so sorry you went through this. How can I help you? Uh, Really being really articulating that. And again, and I put down those statements in the guide and, you know, that's language that um, we should all as a community be, you know, familiar with and be able to have almost like on our, uh, the tip of our tongue, if we're, you know, in a situation where somebody is sharing that they're, that they're going through some kind of a painful situation like this. Yeah. So what, uh, one of the things that we think about is when someone shares and we want that they're, they're kind of hinting to something and we're not sure what they're saying. So how do you pr- not pry, but ask probe to see if they really go in there and they just want one more question or they really don't want to go there or they're trying, they're feeling you out sort of. Yeah. So, and I think that in a situation like that, I, I really, it's almost like a dance of almost trying to kind of, um, respond to them by taking the cues that they're putting putting forth uh, so I would I, you know I, I think that even figuring out a way to kind of ask them um, you know is there something more you want to tell me here um, is there you, you know do you want to set up a time for us to speak and I think again thinking about safety and thinking about privacy is really important 
right? Sometimes, you know, part of a safety plan might, might entail um, having almost like a hint or a safe word with a neighbor, you know, that if I knock on your door and ask if I could borrow some sugar, that might mean, you know, if I knock on your door and, you know, have whatever a code or whatever it is, you might then say, oh yeah, and by the way, is it okay, can I show you the outfit that I just bought for my daughter? You know, it's in the other room, I really want your opinion on it, because then that person is bringing, you know, you into a private and close area where you can speak quietly away from the abuser, right? So almost kind of speaking to the person and figuring out if there are ways to set up some kind of a environment, some kind of a way where you have almost this like built-in support and cues um, and almost hints that um, the person is then able to support you in a situation where you might, you know, you might need that. I want to go back to believe her. Uh, sometimes we hear people say, if it was that bad, she wouldn't be staying. She wouldn't still be there. Can you talk to right. that a little bit? Right. So, you know, again, unfortunately, there are, um, there are so many barriers to a person um, to a victim of abuse coming forward. Um, and one of the barriers, as we're discussing, is the fear of maybe not being believed, the fear of being judged, um, the fear that there's going to be this embarrassment now, you know, the Shanda of people talking about, about the marriage, about the family, um, and so many, so many other barriers. Um, you know, when we just, just to kind of list quickly some of the barriers that victims of abuse face, um, uh, coming forward is, you know, is pressures involved with, uh, with society, with community, um, so let's say, for example, pressures with community, there even might be this fear of losing a sense of belonging or status in the community. What might it mean now to be seen as somebody who's in a abusive marriage or relationship? What might it be, what might it feel like to be seen as somebody who's in a broken home? What might it feel like to show up to a simcha alone um, without having a spouse? Um, you know, shidduchim, we think about shidduchim. I mean, there's so much charge around Shaduchim as being, you know, the um, credibility almost for a person and their children. Um, wanting, you know, being successful in the from community, unfortunately, so often revolves around the Shaduchim, right? So if somebody thinks that they cut, you know, that if they disclose what's going on um, or coming forward might negatively affect um, their own shidduch, their siblings shidduchim, their children shidduchim, that might keep them um, in that abusive relationship. They might be afraid to come forward. Uh, finances, very often somebody might find themselves an abuse victim might be very restricted financially. That might be one of the ways that their partner uh, maintains control over them is giving them virtually zero or very little access to finances. So coming forward, what, how will they progress even? You know, so th these are just some examples of the different barriers that victims of abuse face coming forward. So asking that question of, you know, but why don't they just leave or why don't they get help? It really minimizes and in many, way, in many ways, it just increases um, that sense of, you know, of disempowerment um, that victims of abuse already very often feel. Uh, so we really need to move away from that. I also want to just mention, you know, for a moment, I want to make sure that we, we mentioned for family members supporting a victim um, of abuse. I think, you know, in some ways it's similar. Recently, I was speaking with some parents who were um, about supporting their children through the shut-off process and dating. And uh, for some of these parents were really, really struggling. Um, and certainly for parents or siblings or, you know, close friends of somebody who's in an abusive relationship, it is so counterintuitive to just take a, you know, take a, take a step back to let that person just kind of, you know, stay in the situation or to let the person um, keep, you know, keep every day putting themselves at risk um, and being so abused and you know denigrated by the other person. It's very counterintuitive. Um, but what we find is that for parents, for family members, for loved ones, for friends, uh, 
it's really important for them to get their own support in this situation. For them and to be able to- the, the supporter should have support too. Exactly, yes, because for them to be able to, to show up, and let's say, for example, the parents who I was speaking to about dating, you know, uh, some of them were saying, but what if my kids, you know, are getting older and they're not being, you know, read any shidduchim, and what if they don't meet someone, you know? And sometimes what we find is that parents, because of their own desperation, um, their own fear, they'll start, their own judgment will start to become um, blinded, right? So they might start now pushing their kids to ignore, let's say, red flags of abuse in dating. Um, they might start, uh, you know, encouraging or, or having their children date someone who other people kind of know to say no to because that person, um, you know, maybe has, uh, was in a previous marriage or has some kind of a history of, uh, you know, abuse that they, they are not perhaps the most healthy partner um, because their own, the parent, you know, parents might be allowing their own anxieties to get in the way and that's very dangerous. And we find that for sure the same kind of situation. Um, somebody might wanna just rush to help their, their loved one, um, but it might not be the most helpful approach for that loved one right then. So um, that person should seek their own support, you know, and that might mean reaching out for a mental health professional, um, you know, whoever it is that's able to be supportive to them in their life so that they're able to deal with that issue and make sure they're getting support so they're able to then compartmentalize and show up for the other person in their life with the most, as much strength as possible. Does that, right? Like, yeah, yeah so uh, to add to that, I think that when we're watching someone start to leave and then go back and start to leave and then go back is also very hard. And that's another reason why someone really should get real support for themselves as being the supporter. Sometimes support, yeah. the supporters, and sometimes the supporter is the only one who's getting the therapy or the counseling. The other one's not ready to get counseling yet. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's such a good point to go the, you know, the, the idea of the going back and then getting back together. And, you know, for any of us who've been in a situation of wanting to support someone, um, when we start um, becoming over-invested, you know, and I, I know that Lisa Tversky has spoken about this and I've heard other people speak about this, the idea of, you know, a helper versus a rescuer. And, um, the rescuer, right, sometimes falls into a trap of overworking, becoming so invested, um, becoming almost very authoritarian about do this, leave now, get out, don't tolerate this, say this, don't take that, you know, and when we're starting to almost overextend in energy and we feel our energy level becoming so that if the person's going to leave, we feel like, great, now we did everything right, it's all going well. And then let's say the person goes back to the to their um, abuser, and now we start to feel like, oh my gosh, we just invested all this energy. They're not listening to us. We care about them. Why aren't they doing this? We're so frustrated. We know that we might be slipping into this kind of um, approach of being a rescuer instead of being a helper. And the helping model is a model that we're able to kind of, um, you know, take lay claim to our own helping abilities without becoming controlling, without overworking, without overextending, without making it about ourselves too much, instead of being able to kind of keep a boundary up between supporting the other person while also maintaining our own, you know, mental health, our own, um, you know, feeling of kind of like security, etc. And to add to that, I've actually dealt with a case where the helper, rescuer, said, I'm not going to help you anymore if you don't have to listening to me anyway. And right. that shot the, that shot the relationship and the support and they, she, and she slipped back because, yeah. you know, she, she was disappointing herself and she's disappointing her, her helper. Right. And it was not a good place. So. Right. Exactly. Right. And that's very often, right. Like that, that dynamic will play out that then there's a feeling of not only the person um, the victim uh, or survivor, you know, and the, like this terminology is kind of interchangeable, but you know, survivor. I've heard the terminology, the one who's being hurt. Yeah, I like that. It's a very long that. phrase, but yeah. Right, right. Um, but not only is this person already kind of surviving on a daily basis and navigating their abusive situation, um, and perhaps already navigating so many of their own feelings of shame, self doubt anxiety, fear, you know, all of that, 
Um, but now if they feel like they disappointed the person who was helping them, right? And now um, the person is upset at them, it just adds even more of that sense of shame and, and um, you know, and, and kind of like just um, of, of self, um, loathing I think in that situation and we want to we really want to be careful about that right like we don't and that's really that idea of kind of making sure to um get our own support and not become another source of that also I want to get back to what you're saying about leaving and going back so many times and we know that um statistically that's very much part of the profile of the domestic abuse um scenario the domestic abuse relationship where so often the survivors um, will make multiple attempts to get help or multiple attempts to leave the relationship before they are able to successfully leave because it's so much part of like that pattern um you know and sometimes i like i've heard that statistically a uh, survivor of domestic abuse will make um, you know, seven attempts to leave or sometimes over the, you know, over the course of, might be over the course of many years. And that for Orthodox Jewish victims, it's often double that um, because some of the barriers that, that typically uh, survivors of domestic abuse face uh, in the Orthodox Jewish community, there are even more barriers um, that make it even more complicated for somebody to leave. So we, we definitely, you know, we want to be aware of that as well. I want to move a little bit more macro as far as what the community can do in general. And I'm going to now narrow in. Um, yeah. You mentioned Shaduchim, and it goes back to the why should my kid marry into a family of that? And right. so, and I'm wondering if you can get to the core of that of that concern of the of the will that will a child who grew up in a domestic abuse situation will they bring it into the into their own marriage and and i think that people have a misunderstanding about that and can talk to that yeah yeah so i've had now um multiple i've given now so many workshops between high school workshops and college campuses um where i've been approached multiple times by someone who is a child coming from an abusive home um, and sometimes they'll come over crying and they'll say, this is the home that I come from. You know, I'm thinking specifically of a student at a college campus workshop who came over, you know, and was hysterical and spoke about how, um, you know, this workshop was so triggering for her um, because, you know, this was the first time that she actually saw some of these dynamics laid out in an actual workshop. Um, and hearing some of the words and recognizing so many of the features uh, of the home and the father and the parents, you know, and the, and the marriage that she grew up as witness to for so many years. Um, and she, you know, and she was scared and she was crying and, you know, and she said, um, and, and it was also fascinating because she also had a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt um, because now she was, she was dorming at her college campus um, and she was very happy. She was a junior. She was, you know, third year of college there. She was doing great. And she said, you know, I, I'm doing really well, but thinking about how for so many years, that's the home that I came from. Um, and the fact that that's still going on in my home, that's still my parents' marriage and my younger sister still lives at home. She felt a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt for leaving her younger sister in that situation. You know, and she spoke about how now she's happy. She was actually dating someone um, and the relationship was going very well. And she said, and, and what, you know, but she was feeling sad and fearful about how this might, um, how this might impact her and that this is the home she came from. You know, and I, one of the things that we spoke about, I, I said to her, you know, the truth is some people, um, some people are, are feel, um, feel very uh, despondent coming from identifying as somebody who comes from a home that was very abusive. They feel despondent. Sometimes they feel that others see them as just doomed, right? That how could they have a healthy um, marriage themselves? How could they get a good shut off, right? If this is the home that they come from. I said, you know, the truth is you, um, you had a front row seat for many years. You had a front row seat to a very abusive marriage, a very abusive relationship. Um, and at the same time, you had a front row seat to what you don't want your relationship to look like. And um, it was very empowering for her, you know, and she ended up, she actually 
followed up with me after that. And, and she told me that she had started, um, she started counseling. She, you know, she started by reaching out to her college campus counseling department and she was, you know, going for therapy. And, um, and when I, when I, and then there's so many people that I've spoken to about this who, um, who they themselves, yes, have been traumatized perhaps, have come from a home that's abusive, um, but if they're able to recognize what they do not want to repeat in their relationship, and they're able to see laid out so clearly what they don't want, um, what it looks like to be victimized, what it might feel like to be victimized, because very often children are also collateral in an abusive marriage and an abusive home. They themselves might also be victims of abuse, of course, um, either directly or either or as bystanders. Um, so they, they're often very clear about what it is that they don't want to repeat. And there's almost a sense of like hypervigilance and urgency that I'm not going to repeat this in my relationship. This is not what my marriage is going to look like. Um, so if, if they're able to get, you know, correct support, and that's why we, we go to high schools, right? We want to try to get in as early as possible, um, not only to teach healthy relationships for people to be able to bring into their own relationships and their own marriage, but for children who are coming from abusive homes, we want them to be able to get the workshop, to be able to identify as, okay, this is what's going on in my home and I'm going to reach out for help. And so many of these children do, and so many of these students do, they'll start They'll reach out, they'll get support, they'll start count, you know, they'll start therapy. So then they're able to really go into the dating stage and into marriage in some ways, more prepared in some ways than children who come from, let's say homes that, um, you know, what Shauna always talks about as kind of like maybe good enough marriages, right? And sometimes, you know, there's really, of course, a spectrum, right? Yeah. Some people might be lucky enough to come from homes that their parents have just healthy, amazing marriages. And that's something that they, you know, the modeling that they have and hopefully they'll bring into their own relationships. But statistically, there are plenty of people and plenty of, you know, children who are coming from homes where marriages are like, eh, they're like, okay, people are like still married, but like barely maybe, or like, you know, going through the motions or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, and so those children might not necessarily be coming into the marriage totally uh, equipped to, you know, they might not have thought so much about what they want in their marriage or don't want, yeah. right, where children who are coming from an abusive home might have. So that's what I, I like to really encourage parents to be open-minded about, um, about who you're willing to have your child date. Um, you know, in general, as a community, I think we need to you know, just be more open-minded in general about um, accepting, you know, messiness, right? Like perfection is really not something that um, exists in any marriage or any relationship. Um, at the same time, I do, I really think people have to be honest about, you know, getting help. So I, I, I encourage anybody who is coming from a place of some kind of a trauma, whether it's coming from a domestic abuse background, home, somebody who has experienced any kind of, of course, abuse, you know, child sexual abuse, mostly, you know, or bullying, you know, any kind of trauma, really. I think that um, dating is a really difficult stage for most people. You know, so many people find dating and shidduchim particularly as very complicated, very complex. So I encourage a lot of people to seek therapy at, the, at that time, you know, during dating. Um, but certainly anybody who's coming from a place of trauma just to, to, to try to get into therapy as soon as possible. Um, and then to, uh, to me, most people who have therapy have skills that, uh, and awarenesses that people who didn't have therapy uh, have. So I think that they can sort of see the, whatever it was, the trauma, whatever it was as a gift almost that got them even better skills than right. some people. Right. But, right. But, but, but that's saying, just to say, I don't want a marriage like my parents, mm -hmm. but without doing proactive work, you know, just saying I don't want it is something usually not enough. You oh, for sure. You, now, need to replace, you need to replace skills. Yes, for sure. Meaning, and that's why I encourage anybody in that situation to seek therapy and to learn some of those skills and to you know work through some of their trauma and to recognize what needs to be in place in a healthy relationship. Some of that is done, of course, in a therapeutic framework. We also talk a lot about 
um, about identifying healthy role models and healthy mentors. And that might not have been the, um, it might not have been handed to them by their parents in their home. Um, those might not be the mentors, that might not be the modeling that they're looking to, uh, but to be able to identify other healthy role models or mentors in their life who they can spend time with, who they can go into their home, who they can look to, um, to see, you know, like what, uh, what positive communication between two spouses looks like. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of like another, uh, you know, feature that we'll talk about. I also caution against um, thinking for somebody who's, let's say, uh, dating somebody who's coming from an abusive background, to really be careful. And that's why, again, being in this like mental health um, framework is really important for that person because cautioning against trying to um, rescue the person or cautioning against, let's say, um, becoming, slipping into the role of being the therapist for that person. Because I've seen that happen a lot. You know, where somebody, let's say, who um, is dating somebody who comes from an abusive background might almost um, become, you know, in some ways parentified or almost slip into a role where they're like, they're gonna like nurture the person. They're gonna give them everything they didn't get from their home. They're gonna rescue them, they're, you know. And it's kind of that same idea of needing to maintain really healthy boundaries um, because that person who came from the abuse background, they need to work through that, but not with the, their partner serving the role of the parent for them, the therapist to them. That's not a responsibility that that person should shoulder. Uh, okay, and um, so some of what you were saying sounds more like for the, the child of the gender that was hurt. So like, let's just go with the, to, with the stereotypical, He's like it sounds like the girl, but some of the guys may not even realize how the, what their father was doing, how awful it was. Right. Sometimes, sometimes the mother is quieter about it for her reasons. And right. he may just model his marriage on his father. Right, right. Meaning almost um, identify with the abusive father um, see that as, you know, this is how a man operates in his home, or this is, right, um, right, and look, statistically, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat, um, statistically, uh, you know, um, men who themselves um, go on to be being abusive, uh, there is a higher correlation between them having been you know, growing up in a home where there was abuse. So we, we definitely were, you know, we can't, we can't turn away from that correlation. Like that does exist. Um, I just, I just believe strongly and, and I, you know, I encourage as a community, you know, uh, parents, people, you know, individuals are dating to not to assume that somebody is doomed um, because of their, you know, background. And for that, for those men, let's say, for example, for Again, this is really where it's like the community charge of um, there has to be so much more uh, education earlier on about what healthy marriage is and what needs to be in place in a healthy relationship. And I, I mean, it shouldn't start in the Hassan classes, right? It shouldn't start, the conversation shouldn't be, um, you know, um, uh, isolated to a couple of, uh, you know, classes talking about just you know the halachos and the sexuality like we need to talk more about what healthy marriage is because so that let's say some of those men who you're describing um we want them to recognize um that even if it's something that's going on in their home there have to be other multiple other sources in their life whether it's a rebbe a rab a mashpia whoever it is who's talking a lot about marriage and healthy relationships so that maybe there's a spark of uh, recognition that, oh, wow, because just because my father does that or just because that's what I'm, I'm, maybe that's not really acceptable. Maybe that's not something that I'm just gonna repeat because I'm hearing this from so many other people that that's actually not a healthy marriage, right? So, you know, that, that really comes down to, um, you know, the, the community involvement the leadership, the community. So I've told we have a couple minutes left. We have so much more to talk about the role of the, what the community can do. I wanna to talk to, uh, to the way that 
some in the community may treat women who have left, like just in general, divorced women in general, but specifically abuse. Like somehow there's some people for whatever their reasons mm -hmm. um, treat them like, I don't want, I don't want my kids to be friends with their kids or I don't want their, I don't want that woman to be at my Shabbos table. So can you talk to that a little bit? I mean, it's so unfair, but yeah. maybe talk to it from a different way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's such a, it's such an important, it's such an important point. Um, yeah, I actually just had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with somebody um, who was saying that, you know, that after her divorce, she noticed that all of a sudden, like these families and couples and, you know, people who were inviting her kids for, for play dates, like all of a sudden that stopped. And, and it was so, so, so painful to her, like more than anything else, that was so painful to her that, um, you know, not only everything she had endured, but now thinking that her children were being victimized, right? Um, and I can't, really, I can't think of anything more painful than that, you know, that for somebody to, um, and, and I think that this applies beyond abuse, you know, I think that divorce still is, you know, even though so many more people are getting divorced, like, it's so much more, it's so much more common now, for sure, than a number of years ago, but there is still some stigma associated with that, um, and if as a community, we start creating these um, barriers or these like siloed, um, uh, I don't know, like these, these like siloed spaces where only people who come from, uh, you know, a married home or children who come from healthy, fat, you know, if that's the only people who, who um, are allowed into our community or children who uh, we can allow our children to associate with, I mean, I really think that honestly, that's the antithesis for sure of Yiddishkeit in general, right? Meaning everything that we're supposed to, like our whole, everything that we're supposed to stand for in terms of, you know, chassad and, you know, um, you know, gomei chassadim, rachmanim, baishanim, like all of that definitely is like the antithesis to that. Um, and I think that really, if we think that we're going to be able to almost protect our children by, um, by not allowing messiness or not allowing bad influences to, um, to like, you know, sully their rose colored glasses of the world. I, I don't, I think that we're probably um, positioning our kids to not be very um, thoughtful, kind or resilient people, right? I think we're kind of setting them up to only be able to operate if the people around them are, you know, are perfect. Um, so I don't think we're setting them up for success. And I think typically what I find is that people who are pretty secure as parents and feel like they're doing whatever they can, trying hard, doing a good job at um, teaching their kids good needles, good values, wrong from right, um, you know, being respectful and kind to other people, I find very often that those parents are much more um, tolerant and much more like willing to have their children like associate with the kid who like comes from like a divorced home versus um, parents who I think are very insecure and feel in some ways inadequate about their own parenting and what they're doing for their children. Um, so they think that putting up another barrier and another wall and don't speak to that person and don't play with that kid and don't do that. I find that that's, you know, very often correlated. So, you know, that's so as a community, I think that we, as we can peck away at some of the barriers that hold people in these um, relationships, Right. Like, like you meant, you made, you had a list there before, and if we could, and some people are af afraid of the future of not being included in the community. Their kids being ostracized. Their kids, you know, we right. don't want them in. Well, not in our. We don't want them in, yesh in our yeshiva. We don't want, you know, instead right. of providing a safe haven for them, or a mm -hmm. peaceful haven for them, we just throw them to the side because I don't know why, but because, and I think that if we just pick away at some of those barriers, we'll be doing a big service to the people who are being hurt in these relationships and they can get out sooner. And if we believe, I think it's, right. 
and believe and support and know how to support. I think these are the important things. And I think it's so wonderful that Shalom Task Force has that hotline that people who don't necessarily know yet how to navigate can call and get inside. They don't have to, you don't have to figure it out. There's people who can help you just work through it step by step. And as I understand from our, our conversations that people can call the hotline numerous times and get next step information and next step information. And it can always be anonymous. Right, exactly. Confidential, anonymous. Um, and, and again, as a safety measure, now being able to also even chat in. Um, so if somebody's in a room and they can't talk out loud, they can't or WhatsApp in and be able to um, speak to a, you know, a trusted advocate. Um, so, you know, we definitely, we have this resource. And look, I also, I, I'll just end by saying, you know, I don't think that, um, like, I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, ab uh, accepting somebody from an abusive background is for everyone. You know, I don't think that everyone um, might feel like they want to, uh, let's say, take on that kind of, um, his, you know, family history or background, you know. Um, so it's knowing yourself too, um, knowing what your tolerance is, knowing what your capabilities are, knowing what your, um, you know, your threshold for like messiness and, you know, and, and like baggage, you know, all of that. Um, but I do think it's really, as you're saying, Deborah, like definitely as a community, um, having, feeling a sense of obligation really and responsibility certainly to children who um, are coming from abusive homes uh, or divorced homes or homes where there's any kind of really crisis. Um, and, um, and I think we do, by the way, an amazing job as a community supporting, you know, people in crisis when it's cri a crisis that's like more comfortable, right? So somebody who were, you know, a home that hospital, somebody has cancer and the mother is going for chemo and, you know, in a home where somebody was just in an accident and a home where, you know, I think as a community, we are like above and beyond the best, right? And I think that that tells us that we actually, we have that within us as a community, the fabric of our community, you know, we have a million beaker Hollands and Tonkei Shabbases and we have that like built in. Um, and I think that we probably can, if we want to, we can draw that up a little bit more and extend it more um, to supporting, you know, survivors of abuse. And um, I, I think we can get there as a, and I think we are actually making great strides as a community, um, you know, and I, and I think we, we can continue heading in that direction. I mean, <laughs> thank you so much, Avital. Just, uh, why don't I just give the name of your, of the, the link to your website. Shalomtaskforce.org. Right? Yeah. I put the, I put the number in the chat. I just want to bring that back up, just for those who are listening rather than reading the chat. It's seven one eight three three seven thirty seven hundred. Okay, sorry. Actually, um, Devor, that's the, the old number. Still, I know that when people Google, but no, it's still on it's your still, website. Uh, this okay? No, it's still it still works. Oh, okay. Uh, but I will say the eight. We give now, we always give the 888 number. The chat is connected to the 888. So it's 888-883-2323. you get that? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's the confidential anonymous hotline. And, um, and people can also... Uh, text and WhatsApp to that number. Also, if you go to the Shalom Task Force website, shalomtaskforce.org, you can also access, um, it says live chat, you know, to speak to a live chat representative, click here. So you can also reach the chat line, um, you know, using using that. Shalom Task Force is only for New York City or can it be anywhere, everywhere? No, so we actually, we, we get calls, we receive calls internationally. Uh, and we're affiliated and, and partnered with so many communities across the U.S. Uh, we also have a whole education department actually in Israel as well. Um, and, you know, we receive calls from Australia, from Russia. We really, we receive calls internationally. Um, if somebody is calling or chatting in from another area, we are aware of many of the resources uh, in those locations. We've done, a, you know, a thorough um, 
you know, analysis of who the providers are in those areas that are either trained to support uh, survivors of domestic abuse or uh, culturally specific for the from communities. So if you reach out from those different locations, we're able to provide you know resources there as well. And of course, always first and foremost, providing support. And sometimes people just call, um, and we encourage anybody to just call, even again, um, to talk about what's going on or to ask questions. You know, and not everybody is at the point of calling and asking for a referral. Um, we're always providing support as well. Um, so you can go to the Shalom Task Force website. You can also go to the Adayad website. We have uh, resources and articles that we've compiled on the topic of the different aspects, family, children, how to be supportive, different books, just lots of resources that we've compiled as well. So that's at the Adayad website. That's Adayad, A-D-A-I-A-D dot org. And you'll see lots of other information there as well. So thank you so much, Avital. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, thank you, Shalom Task Force, for hosting us tonight. And, yeah. right, and good night, everybody. You can send any questions to us at info at adayad.org. Everything is confidential and we can try to help you uh, in any area of, with marriage, shidduchim, and anything else like that. So thank you and good night. Thank you.